Before you tune in, check your inventory to make sure you've got enough Frank's Red Hot for service tonight. Canada's number one hot sauce brand, it's your perfect blend of flavor and heat. If it's not Frank's, it's not Buffalo. Welcome to Table Talk, the podcast that takes an in-depth look at the dynamic and exciting restaurant world. We sit down with industry leaders as they share best practices, highlight smart solutions, and discuss strategies for growth, ultimately helping food service operators learn how to affect positive change and grow their business. Now, here is your host, editor and publisher of Food Service and Hospitality Magazine, Rosanna Kyra. So today, it's my pleasure to have with me on Table Talk, Christine Couvillier. Christine has a great passion for food. With more than 30 years of experience as an executive chef and a culinary trendologist, she is a sought-after consultant in the world of food. Christine has an uncanny ability to predict culinary trends, understand consumer thinking, and translate these concepts into actionable business strategies, which has made her a global leader in the industry. In her past roles, she's worked with a wide range of businesses, from big box grocery stores and large food producers, to culinary schools and centers for innovation. She's been the executive chef for President's Choice, the culinary director for Cara Operations, and, in the um, and the chair of the chef school at George Brown College, Canada's largest culinary school. She's also been the director of culinary strategy at Maple Leaf Foods, just to name a few companies. Regardless which hat she's wearing, her goal is simple, to empower businesses with knowledge to differentiate themselves from the competition and also drive measurable results through future-proof strategies. So welcome, Christine, and thank you for taking time to be with us today. Thanks, Rosanna. I'm pleased to be with you. Wonderful. So I thought we'd start our conversation today um, with a little bit of an introduction about your company and, uh, and what you do for listeners out there who maybe are not as familiar with, with you and, and, uh, and your product knowledge. So you, um, you have a company named Culinary Concierge, which I absolutely love the name. I think that's a wonderful name. What's the focus of Culinary Concierge? And tell us a little bit about how that basically came to life. Well, I opened Culinary Concierge about 12 years ago. I had just moved to the West Coast, out to Victoria, and all my past employers and customers of my past employers were calling and asking me to sort of parachute in and do a project and advise them on something or asking if they could join me to walk a food show and, and such. And I thought, gee, I feel like a concierge. So that's how the name came to be. The company really allows me to share my passion for food. And my customers are across North America, so it can be large food manufacturers and innovative foodpreneurs. And as an executive chef and a leading global culinary trendologist, I really answer the question, what does tomorrow taste like? So it can be looking at gourmet and grocery stores. It can be looking at restaurant menus. And there's a big menu of services, you know, creative ideation and culinary focused innovation. I've written a trend watch report for decades now, and I still do that at this at this company, focusing, focusing on emerging, developing, and existing trends. I take clients on in-store at-market tours around the world where tastes and trends are happening, and I still do it virtually until we can get yeah. back to going around the world. I focus on innovation center, design, and operational audits, a lot of competitive and category analysis. I'm very future food forward focused. And, and I really love to think about it in this term. I want to make food better 
and make better food. And my overall goal is taste, 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 because we're making food and we're not making paper clips. Right. Well, that sounds like a, a big to-do list there. Just uh, there's a lot there. And you started it, you said, what, 12 years ago? Is that right? Yes. And prior to that, um, you know, you've been an executive chef. So your food background has, your background has always been really focused on food, it sounds like. Um, and this was kind of more of a of an idea that came up, I guess, after your variety of jobs that you've had in the industry. Is that right? What made That's you right. want to launch this, I guess, is the question. To continue to share my passion for food. My heart sings when I get to be involved in food. And and it's a thrill that I have a job that I love so much. I can't imagine doing anything except being involved in food. That's amazing. Well, everybody loves food. So everybody's probably jealous of, of your job. <laughs> yes. um, so I understand you also have another company now that, uh, that you've kind of started and it's called Teach, Taste and Learn. Tell us a little bit about that and the two distinctions between the two, I guess. Sure. This one started just about a year ago. And its focus is around being a service for faculty and leaders in culinary and hospitality schools around the world. You know, I think about chef faculty members who are great. They've been trained as chefs. They can make souffles. They can create menus. But were they ever really trained to be a teacher? And Interesting in many point. Cases, yeah. Right? In many cases, they weren't. Uh, my partner in Teach, Taste, Learn is an incredible educational specialist. His name is Dave Durpak, and he has been the head of many leading colleges and schools. He was Canada's Principal of the Year, uh, top graduate uh, on, the, on the special list from UBC. What we do is we go into culinary and hospitality schools, mm -hmm. and we do an evaluation. Think of it as a report card. And we look at instruction tips. I spend a lot of time looking at curriculum and reviewing it. We bring forward a network of industry leaders who we can then put in a rotation uh, as guest lecturers or people to do demos and really look at the overall school operations. And right now, more important than ever before, we focus on what skills are the culinary students, the next generation of culinary professionals being taught, and does it match what the industry needs right now? Uh, and I guess as compared to culinary concierge, it's still future food forward focused. Okay, so you're really using a lot of the skills that you had um, in your in your school days, really, because you worked at George Brown for quite a few years. Um, so you've really taken those and applied them into this new business, which sounds really just right up your alley, obviously. <laughs> and when I look at the marketplace today, where we're at, you know, uh, after eight months of being in, in this COVID pandemic um, crisis, how are you feeling um, about where we're at with, with this lockdown in terms of how it relates to your companies and what you're doing? I mean, what has this lockdown been like for you, um, both from a personal level, but from what you're doing in your professional role? Well, it's, it's been a challenge, hasn't it? And it's been a mindset change we've all had to adapt to. Usually, I'm a, spending a great deal of time on airplanes, and I go and, and I work with my clients. So that's changed. There's no food shows to attend or sharing food or tasting food or, or networking with the wonderful um, industry we work in. No culinary travel trips to explore and be inspired. Uh, personally, I have a daughter who is in Toronto working and without getting to see her, we've now adapted every Saturday morning for a three hour Skype cooking together. Oh, and really? 
Yeah. And it, so it, it gives us a chance to connect, of course, and, and cook together as together as we can be and share our love of food. My product development continues. If I'm working on products for a manufacturer or products for a menu, they'll produce the samples. They'll ship them to me. I'll taste them here in Victoria. We'll do a Skype call and, and adjust and and continue on the development. And, and who knew that we would be attending virtual food shows? I, <laughs> I can't imagine that we're doing it, but it, we're doing it. So when you say you're attending a virtual food show, um, I get that you can do pretty much anything over the, you know, over computers today, but how do you get to experience the, the, the actual taste factor when you're doing that virtual show? Are you getting um, kits that are sent to you before the show? Or Tell us a little bit about that process, because I think that's quite interesting. So you're right. A virtual show at least opens up the ability to network and the ability to see new products that are coming along or new tastes that are coming forward. When interested, I do reach out and they'll send samples. Often, you're right, samples may arrive from certain companies that want me to taste before a show. Uh, so it's, it's what we're making do with right now. Of course. Is it replacing the food show? Nothing. There is nothing like arriving at a major food show and entering the floor for the first time and looking at the thousands of booths and the tens of thousands of attendees and that excitement that you're all there to share food together and learn together. We can't replace that exactly, but we must continue on with innovation and we must continue on with development for the future of food. So, Let's leave COVID for a moment and we'll come back to it in a few minutes um, because it's hard to have any discussion these days without bringing COVID in in some shape or form. But before COVID happened, what were you seeing in the world of food trends? I mean, we've, we've gone through different periods, you know, where comfort food is big and then other times more exotic tastes come into to play. What were you seeing before COVID um, in terms of food trends? Well. Here's some that I that I saw before that I also think will continue on in different ways. And we can talk about that, too. There's a big trend around floral and and flavors like cherry blossom or elderflower or orange blossom. Vibrant, light, can be adapted to sweet and to savory applications. When I think of a retail focus for that, I look to that. Oh, wonderful brand. Oh, of orange blossom vinegar. It's a great example of how it pops. One of the other trends, although it's more of a movement than a trend, is plant-based. And we can't have a trend discussion without discussing what's happening in the world of plant-based. Um, innovations are certainly happening fast. And, and pre and during COVID, that hasn't changed a bit. Consumers' education is raising. Chefs' innovations are continuing to impress me. And retailer awareness and willingness to embrace this whole category is wonderful. You know, and it's not about rejecting traditional protein sources. It's about having options. And we see really increased innovation in plant-based cheese and ice cream and absolutely in meat. Um, right now, we know that nine out of 10 consumers who eat plant-based meats also eat meat. So that means you are innovating and your target consumer and diner is basically everyone. Right. And it's all about taste, taste, taste. There is no excuse for a plant-based product to not have great taste. Uh, you know, watch for a lot of blended burgers too coming along in the blended category between plant and animal meat. Um, so a combination of the two is what you're saying. 
Yes, I think that 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 is an in you know an introduction to the plant-based world to a lot of people, and it's another innovation. Another trend I'm watching is something I'm calling sizzle. And sizzle is all about flavor and heat. Consumers are using more hot sauce in place of salt than ever before. Right. And cons- and packaged good companies and restaurants are paying attention. So Jelly Bellies. Jelly Bellies flavors this year are all about sizzle. Sriracha, jalapeno, cayenne, habanero, and Carolina Reaper. They're not your old-fashioned Jelly Bellies. They're all about sizzle. When I look to restaurant innovation, I love Nashville hot chicken. And traditionally, it comes from Prince's Hot Chicken Shack in Nashville, and they tell the story. But there's authenticity with a twist happening. And Chef Michael Mina has opened up a Tokyo hot chicken takeout and delivery from inside his bourbon steak restaurant in California. And he serves it with togarashi and kimchi slaw and furikake fries. So it's an interesting twist on sizzle. Go ahead. (laughs) Then there's a trend I'm calling see you on Sunday. See you on Sunday. Yes. And it's all about sharing food around a table. It's very life satisfying. Right. Consumers want to know the story of where the food came from and the history and the origin of some of the ingredients. So pre-COVID, Lord Stanley Restaurant in San Francisco had Sunday suppers. And when you arrived, they had warm bread wrapped in a linen napkin on the table. And it was so inviting. That's great. Or you could go to Luke's um, before it closed down in Los Angeles with Chef Suzanne Goyne. And she had Sunday supper with Luke's. And when you sat down and ordered your cocktail, a little dish of Luke's olives from France with olive oil and salt and pepper would arrive on the table. But now during COVID, we're cooking Sunday food memories. Maybe not always on a Sunday, but we really are cooking them. And everybody has different Sunday food memories from roast beef and popovers to, uh, you know, thinking of a Sunday sauce that's boiled all day to put on pasta. Every year I think of a dish of the year. And this year, the dish of the year is charcuterie. Really? With a twist. And I'm calling it secuterie. And it's seafood in amazing different ways, pickled, fermented, steamed, grilled, and smoked. And think of innovations to taste like octopus salami and shellfish sausage or salmon pastrami. And look to places like the Highwayman in Halifax. It's an amazing restaurant with great little tastes and tapas and all those kind of tastes to go along with seacuterie. So when I listen to you and you're talking about, you know, more of the flavors, the exotic flavors, the hot flavors, um, what's what's driving that? Is that um, today's more sophisticated consumer? Is it, you know, people who are exposed to travel more? What, what is the impetus for that? Because when you look at hot sauces and spices, there's more today than we've ever seen at our disposal. Um, is that also changing demographics and you know immigrants coming in, moving to Canada and bringing their, their habits with them? What is fueling that? A few things. Consumers know more than ever before. So they've traveled, they've read about new flavors, they've read about authentic tastes and they want to experience it. Now match that with chefs who are experimenting and who are creating new tastes and who are giving them to consumers to try along with 
than the products that show up in retail that come sort of after chef's experiments. And it's really opening up the whole world. You know, I think some of the innovations are also based around sustainability and awareness of the world in which we live. And, and one of those is seaweed. And, you know, when I think of seaweed, I think of the salty, savory, sustainable, new superfood. And it's really taking the, the food industry by storm and making waves, so to speak. There's a company in the West Coast of Canada called Cascadia Seaweed, and they are innovating to become the largest cultivator of seaweed in North America. And they're producing a line of great tasting seaweed products. So I think about that from two ways. Consumers want to know more. They're providing them the education around what seaweed is. And it's not uh, something scary. You know, um, remember a few years ago, we, we were looking and talking about crickets. Yes. And innovation. And, and when I think about the education required around a cricket, it's all very much a getting over the yuck factor of the Jiminy Cricket world. <laughs> but seaweed has something enticing and seaweed has something unique. Again, it can be in sweet and savory applications. Um, so I think about that innovation fueled by taste and flavor, but what's good for the world. So do you think, I mean, obviously good for the world is a big part of what you're saying. Is, is it also being driven by people's um, fascination with more you know, healthy eating? Um, do you see a lot of the products that are coming out today being fueled by our desire just to eat healthier as we get older? And also with millennials and, and their need to, to have you know, different kinds of foods that they're uh, interested in. So how do you see that playing out? I see that playing out in a category I was identifying this year as good food, good mood. People are understanding what it means to eat something healthy and how to fuel your body. Uh, and it could be fueling your body to get through the day or to go for a bike ride or go to the gym. But it also could be filling your body with something that helps you sleep better at night. Mm -hmm. So really a well-rounded experience. I look to leaders. Um, in the grocery world, like Kroger in the United States, who now have, instead of dietitians who would be able to prescribe a pill or a prescription to help with something, they're now having dietitians in quotes offer food prescriptions. So they have a consulting service that says, all oh, right, I'm not feeling well, I might be having headaches, I'm having a reaction to this kind of, of, of food, and they're offering food solutions. Isn't that amazing? That's great. I love that because I think people are more aware today that food is more than just sustaining, you know, your hunger. It's about sustaining your body and eating properly, you know, feeds into that, as you say. So, so that's really important. How about the whole movement? Um, you know, we're seeing it today with COVID probably a little bit more, but how do the two realities of food, food service and retail kind of work together in driving trends? Because when we look at trends, you know, it's, it's, it's twofold. It's what we want to eat as people, as consumers eating in the, in the home. But it's also when we go out, we, we choose to eat differently, perhaps in a restaurant experience. How do the two kind of coexist? Do you see a relationship between trends in retail and trends in restaurants? Or do you think there's, there's just two distinct realities? Oh, they're very, very much attached. When I produce a trend watch report, I'm looking at emerging, developing, and existing trends. And generally it's one to five years out. When I think of emerging trends, that's where we're seeing 
really innovative chefs experiment with new flavors, put specials on menus, almost like a test market to see how their, their diners are going to enjoy them. Um, we hear about discussions at food shows or industry magazines. And it shifts into developing where there might be some smaller gourmet stores rather than grocery stores mm -hmm. have a few specialty products that are testing the waters and, and seeing how those new flavors and our products come to be. We might start to read about it more in something like a, a food and wine or a Bon Appetit where it's more consumer based to those that are aware of food and wanting to experience new foods. Then the existing products are ones we've we've seen quite a while. Um, it could be a reinvention of a product. You know, uh, maybe we all love bacon and we all love jam, and that's how bacon jam came to be because it was a reinvention. Um, existing products could be things like balsamic vinegar, which used to be such a treat, and you'd buy it in a great little bottle and take mm -hmm. it as a hostess gift, and now it's at convenience stores. Um, so I find that the trends that are started with restaurant chefs and moving through to gourmet to grocery stores have a lot of connection between them. And it's part of being externally focused. And it's something that I work with all of my clients on, really understanding what's happening in the industry and being externally focused, knowing your category, whether you are creating for a menu or creating for a grocery shelf, who is your competition? What is in your category? Doing tastings, visiting restaurants, making sure you understand what's on their menus. You know, this industry we, we are so fortunate to be part of is also a very giving and sharing industry. So the fact that you can go and visit chefs and they're open and you'll talk about what's on their menu and you'll taste and cook and talk to them is something that makes me smile when I get to do it. So now during COVID, of course, we can't do that. But that doesn't mean that I'm not on the phone, to chefs around the globe talking about what they're feeling and what they're tasting and what they're cooking and how they're bringing things back from the market and what new creations they're making that will show up so that consumers can really experience them. So, so in, your, um, in your mind, you're, you believe that restaurants and chefs are actually driving those trends that eventually also come into the home. They absolutely are. That doesn't mean that if you then wanted to launch a product, you still still don't have a lot of work to do of to course. take it from concept to shelf. But again, externally focused and understanding who your target consumer is, who your target retailer is, who's your target diner, so that you are innovating to solve problems for them, to give them things they love, to introduce them to new things, and of course, to be successful in your business from diners coming in more often to eat in your restaurant or take out at your restaurant now or repeat purchase on a, on a shelf. Okay. Um, and then also the, the movement to local foods and local cuisine has been really key for a long, long time now, probably more than a decade. Um, do you think that's still a very viable, strong trend in the marketplace today? And do you see that maybe evolving at all in the next little while? I think it is still maybe a trend and still part of our food world. Consumers love the story. Where did it come from? Is there a history to it? If it's a special little pasta sauce that a chef is serving in a restaurant, what's the story? What was the little no-no who created the sauce and, and who made it first? And, and then how did they adapt it with little tweaks? Certainly it's not going away. And I think it's been even proven during our COVID time at home and away from restaurants in many cases, 
that it's very important. Um, knowing where your food comes from, even on a closer, very local scale, and that now we haven't been traveling like we used to. So we're really getting to know what's around us, um, what farmers markets are open, and when the strawberries came out, and when the corn on the cob came out, and when we could we could all enjoy it. Um, it certainly fuels our food memories whether it be something that we've created at home or something that chefs are showing us in, in restaurants. And I think it's going to be really important going forward as we open up the restaurant world again and we can experience it all together again. So from your perspective and, and your perch in the industry of where you're going and, and what you're seeing, um, what's the lifeline of a trend? I mean, when you look at a trend, you know, we think, oh, this is very trendy today. This is a new trend that's coming up. It's not like it just surfaces overnight. It, it's probably been in fruition for a while. What would you say is the lifeline of a trend before it actually becomes a trend? So when I look at emerging, developing, and existing trends, on average, it's six to nine years to go from one to the other. That doesn't mean that everything that is emerging will end up as an existing because quite often things fall right off the rails right. and and then they don't become a trend and they drop off altogether. If you could be sitting in my office, you would see my trend watch reports in pencil on the wall um, as I change them up all of the time. But generally six to nine months. That also is important. nine months or six Sorry. to nine years, you said. Six Sorry. to nine years. Years. Okay. And it's also so important to match that to how often do you change your menu on your at your restaurant? How often do you create a line extension or a new product to put on a grocery shelf? And how you match the trend watch report to your to your innovation timeline is really critical. We all know the really trendy things that rose really fast and dropped off really fast. Something like unicorn toast. You know, it was very Instagrammable and everybody loved it. But is it something that's here to stay? No, it, it was a flash in the pan. Um, as compared to really thinking about trends around cuisines and dishes and ethnicities where consumers are wanting to know more. So it's not just saying um, here is uh, here is a pasta sauce. It's where does it come from? Or it's not just saying this is a, a French dessert. Where does it come from? Does it come from Lyon? Does it come from Paris? And, and what is the history behind it? And that helps build the strength of a trend to really become part of our culinary world. Still thinking about what to serve your diners and takeout customers tonight? Think Buffalo. Think Frank's Red Hot. As Canada's number one hot sauce brand, you can put that shit in everything, even beverages. Often imitated and never duplicated. The flavor always holds up and keeps dishes red hot. Remember, if it's not Frank's, it's not Buffalo. So you mentioned, um, you know, the unicorn toast and Instagram. And, you know, obviously social media has really helped accelerate various trends and also made people a lot more um, aware of food. I mean, you can't go through Instagram without seeing a million pictures of various dishes. What do you think social media has done to trends? And, and is this kind of instilled the early infancy do, or do you see it still changing um, over the next few years as social media changes as well? I find it fascinating because decades ago when I started out as a chef in a restaurant, I couldn't imagine having 
the tool of social media where people really eat with their phone first. Yes. That's not what we started as, but here we are in the world of social media. So I like to look at it from the point of view of it can be an added benefit. If a chef is wanting to figure out if putting special A or special B on their menu is more popular, they can post it on social media and see how it drives diners into the restaurant. You know, that's a test market tool that's invaluable. That's very important, actually, when you put it that way, isn't it? Because you can really test out everything you have in your restaurant. Exactly. And, and imagine being able to do that. Wow, I would have loved to have done that a few decades ago. But, but they have the ability to do that. You know, to have to know who your target diner is, who your target guest is in your restaurant, and innovate and create menu items for them gives those guests the ability to become your ambassadors. And they continue through social media to tell their friends or to post those stories or to post those pictures of eating your food. And it really becomes ambassadors. So in the world of COVID, we are in restaurants every week as much as we used to be. Uh, we will be in the future, but we're not today. But that doesn't mean that people are still, that they're ignoring social media. Right now, when, when restaurants and chefs are adapting and changing and offering takeout or, you know, pick up, grab and go and have that restaurant taste, although around your dining room table at home, people are still posting those pictures. So they're still promoting and talking about the restaurants and chefs they love. That's, that's really, really true. And, and even earlier, you were saying that, you know, you miss, um, you know, the ability to speak with chefs about what they're doing. During COVID, a lot of those chefs have now turned to social media to actually do cooking, you know, online demos and sharing their recipes even with a lot of their uh, customers, which, you know, years ago would have been unheard of. Um, so there's still a really good ability to connect, you know, food through, through Instagram and, and social media, which um, is exactly what you're saying. But I think that's kind of exciting, you know, at least it keeps everybody connected during this, during this phase. Um, and speaking of this phase, obviously COVID now has been going on for probably close to nine months, you know, and when, when you look at it, it's just unbelievable. How do you think it's changed the way people look at food. I know, you know, like everyone, I'm missing restaurant food quite a lot and I'm sure everybody feels that way. We're all getting a little tired of cooking at home every single day or, or as more, more than we used to. How do you think COVID has changed the way trends will evolve over the next while as we keep moving through various stages of this pandemic? Well, certainly we've seen restaurants and chefs have to adapt and have to adjust because it's affected how consumers shop and eat and celebrate and gather around food. But the innovation is still there as long as you focus on knowing your customer. So we've seen some restaurants adapt and become provision providers. So you can show up and you can uh, get their house-made bacon or you can buy their stock. Or the other day I popped into a restaurant and they had a very large uh, glass container filled with duck fat and duck confit. Uh, I wanted to hug it, it was so wonderful. <laughs> and, and that's such a treat. So that's a wonderful thing, knowing that that excites their customers, even if it's given to them in a different way. Um, and, and I don't think that's 
a bad thing. I think that's been a very interesting thing. And maybe your target customer base has also started to grow because those who haven't been able to go into your restaurant before are now picking up your provisions. So it's an opportunity to, to certainly innovate in the future in a different way. Do you think, um, you know, when I look at how restaurants have pivoted over the last few months, many of them have pivoted to foods that travel better, I guess, for this, you know, for the sake of a better term. Um, you know, you, you can't order everything and have it arrive just the exact same way you would have it in the restaurant. So you're starting to see a lot more what I would call probably comfort foods, you know, like whether it's chicken or hamburgers or, you know, things, um, foods that really speak to more of that fast food kind of ability. You're not going to see necessarily fine dining exported to the home as well. Do you think that changes how restaurants look at food for, you know, for the duration of this pandemic that they won't be maybe as creative in what they're offering because it won't travel as well? I think in many cases, chefs and restaurants who never focused on takeout before have had a large learning curve in what does travel <laughs> because not everything travels. No. So they're, they're really innovating and adapting around that. We've seen, you know, more ghost kitchens and more delivery only and more curbside pickup. We've seen in the States, I've started to see food halls where restaurants have come together for grab and go, right. um, or certainly like recipes unlimited here um, with their multi-brand takeout and delivery. You know, that has been, that's been very interesting. I think that consumers are still really driving the need and the wish for more food that they can pick up and take out or have delivered. 62% of diners say that restaurant food is still a treat, whether it be a treat in the restaurant or whether it be a treat in their own home. Right. And I think in that way, it's making it even more special. So you think they'll be evolving more to provide more choice as we as we get through various stages of this pandemic? I mean, maybe in the beginning, they were doing more of what was what was, you know, normal for everybody to know, as opposed to now where they've had more time to to adjust. But do you see that maybe, you know, fine dining is in trouble at all? Because Fine dining is a whole different, uh, you know, a different perspective. And really, you need the two, three hours to enjoy a great meal in, in a fine dining restaurant. How do you now transport that? And what does that mean to those restaurants moving forward? You know, fine dining is so special for all of us. And, and it's something we miss. But this industry is made up of people who are resilient and innovative and supportive and have great taste. So when we think about fine dining being a shared experience, being full of hospitality and making memories, we don't think of it as experiencing a meal in a plexiglass bubble. And that's something that our mindset has to change, but still we all want to support restaurants and we want them to survive and we want them to move forward. I think that for fine dining to exist, we really need to pull together more voices of chefs and operators and sommeliers and suppliers. And we really need to hear their voices louder than we may have been to date so that it can move into the future. I think of how Anita Stewart drew us all together to be proud of the food that we have in Canada and what goes on all of our tables across Canada. And, and you know, 
maybe in Anita's memory, if we could gather more people together from the industry to really think about fighting for the future and what we need to, to move forward. You know, it, it's, it, there's a lot of new rules that we're all having to uh, get used to at how to work and how to visit a restaurant. But we know that restaurants are still considered one of the safest places to be That's when right. protocols are put in place. So that message still has to be out there loud and clear. Yeah, that's a very important point, and that's some a message that hasn't always been heard by a lot of the leaders and the uh, political leaders, and you know, in our society. Um, so there is restaurants are used to having safety protocols at the best of times, so they're they're really well suited to this. Um, obviously, late, earlier you talked a little bit about innovation, and you know, when you look at a crisis like this pandemic, crises always have a way to maybe spur innovation. You know, it forces us to look at things a little differently. And through this pandemic, a lot of operators have had to be more creative, more innovative, more adaptable than ever before. So it's been great to see some of that innovation. But what, what do you see as maybe further innovations that we haven't seen as much that may be tackled uh, over the next few months? Is there anything that, you know, restaurants and, and food purveyors could be doing differently to um, to evolve? I think there's a lot of, even after we're out of this lockdown of COVID, um, that we're still going to have to change going forward. I think, you know, we've been talking about fine dining and, and certainly fast casual is adapting with takeout. But think about the world of conferences and conventions and how food plays a role in their lives. It's, it's huge. Culinary tourism and just the tourism of any city revolves around the conferences that show up. And food and telling the story of those foods um, where the conference guests are, are very important. So conferences are going to have to adapt. We may not have buffets at a conference any longer. So what is it gonna look like? Is it going to be little food stations where food is prepared for you and handed to you safely rather than um, the buffet or the, or the plexiglass shield on a salad bar, which I don't think that we will see going forward again. But that's still an opportunity for innovation. And that's still an incredible opportunity to share those chefs' passion for food, to share new tastes, to tell stories about the food and where it comes from. So maybe in those cases, they have in artisan producers, whether it be craft beer or cheesemakers or bakers, to, to hand out samples and, and really share their food. You know, we have to think, start to think of the whole uh, culinary industry and how it is going to adapt going forward. And how have you adapted, I guess, through this pandemic? I mean, I know you talked about food shows and how they've changed, but has this pandemic forced you to look at your business model in a different way with a different set of eyes? It has. I've had to become certainly more flexible <laughs> and I've had to learn new skills. I didn't know I would be doing ideation sessions over Zoom because that's not me. I like to put food on a table and taste with people and, and be there and, and be very hospitable and host meetings. And I'm very much a hugger and I can't do that. Uh, so, you know, I've had to be very flexible. Um, it's been very interesting to me that attending international conferences virtually has still allowed me the ability to network. And I've met some really interesting people that I may have met if it was in person, but I'm very pleased to say I've met virtually. I, I've been talking to my clients about 
really paying attention to how they're adapting and how they're adjusting. Because I feel that those that are adapting and adjusting really well will be the leaders at the other end of this. So where do you get your inspiration for, for new ideas and, uh, and new approaches to food? I mean, obviously you eat, live and breathe food. Where do you get your inspiration when you look at what's, uh, what's going on and how you would like to maybe incorporate some of those trends into what you're doing? So pre-COVID, I spent a lot of time at food shows, a lot of time at farmer's markets, a lot of time in restaurants and, and cooking and tasting with chefs, um, a lot of time in grocery stores. I know that sounds odd, but, you know, watching what people buy or don't buy. So here I am during COVID still waiting for my inspiration. Um, you know, the book that says here's the top 10 trends doesn't arrive in the mail. So I still have to be very externally focused. So I do a lot of virtual tours. I pull up grocery stores around the world and see what specials or new products they've been launching. I make sure to call chefs and see what they're putting on their menus. I read newspapers from around the world, generally on Fridays and Wednesdays, to look at their food sections because I want to know what journalists are writing about. That helps me stay in tune with that area or that region and what people are interested in if that's showing up in a newspaper. I'm still tasting all the time, whether it be doing category or competitive analysis or having someone send new products we're working on or ordering takeout from a few different restaurants, yes, to support restaurants from the bottom of my heart, but also to just taste the new things they're practicing. That's great. Um, and Christine, I know in your past life, you worked with President's Choice and, and obviously they were a leader in coming up with new products all the time and new ideas. When I look at the marketplace today, uh, as COVID is, is you know, wreaking havoc all over the place, you really start to see there's, there's always been, well, in the last decade, there's been a lot of blurring of the lines in retail and food service. And I feel like now that blurring of the lines is, has become even more um, obvious and, and more important. How do you think that's going to play out between retail and food service? I mean, restaurant owners and chefs now are starting to have products that they would normally serve in their restaurant being sold in retail establishments. Um, and that's been happening a little bit before COVID, but it's really been accented, uh, accented during, uh, during COVID. Where do you see this going, this blurring of the lines between retail and food service moving forward? I think it's fabulous because these challenges and changes we've all been going through has really led to driving incredible innovation. So chefs have become more brands than ever before. And that's fabulous. So from the chef point of view, the awareness is there. They're still getting their taste out there. They're, they're getting their passion of food on someone's table, which I believe in turn will drive them back into their restaurants when we're allowed to go back to all restaurants. From the gourmet or grocery side of the world, it's a fabulous change because we're having more innovation on the shelves, new innovation that may never have come to the shelf before. Instead of thinking of the past same-ish, some of products that show up on the shelf and just line extensions, we're really pushing the barrier and seeing new inventions out there. 
when we finally have a food show live and in person, it's going to be filled with things we may never have seen in a few, in a food show for five or six years into the future. I think we've sped up innovation in many ways. For sure. Are you excited by the future post-COVID in terms of where you think we're all going after being in this lockdown for almost a year? Uh, what, do we, what do you feel about that? What's the future look like in your mind? I am excited about it. Um, I can't wait to get back to restaurants whenever I want to, rather than just planning uh, to be part of a small group that can go into a restaurant. I get excited when I think about sharing food around a table. That makes my heart sing. And to be able to do that, whether it be at home or whether it's in a restaurant, it's a fabulous thing. I really think that um, we are a resilient industry. We have been knocked down because of the restrictions and the rules. And, uh, you know, to further my point of us all getting together and really getting our voice out there so that the leaders of the country and the provinces know that the restaurant industry is core to so much of what happens in our world. Um, we will survive. We need some help to survive. But I'm fully excited about the future. Think of the think of. I can't even come up with the top three places I want to go first, but I, but I know I can't wait to be there and to really taste and experience food. And things may be different for a long time. You know, thinking about protocols in restaurants, restaurants have always been good with cleanliness. Um, maybe now the flow of a restaurant is going to be changed for a lot longer. Maybe um, the touch points and how often your plate or your uh, cutlery or your glasses are touched are going to be changed going forward. And that's okay. We can adapt to that. Um, but allowing the chefs and, and the um, creative people behind restaurants really flourish and welcome their diners back in again will be really exciting. That's great. So as a way to, uh, to wrap up our interview today, what do you think are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned personally through this pandemic? Because I think it's given us all pause to kind of re-examine our lives and how we were doing things and now maybe do things a little differently. What are the, the biggest lessons for you? Certainly, I was someone always on an airplane and I was always traveling and, and that will be nice to jump back into, but maybe I won't be traveling at the speed I was and maybe appreciating and slowing down a bit more will be important. Perhaps uh, when I do travel to my clients and I'm in a city to take a few extra days at the beginning or the end and really spend time getting to know the area a bit more and visiting the little cheesemongers or visiting a little bakery or, you know, exploring a bit more. Um, I might take more time for that. Excellent. Well, we hope that that happens sooner rather than later, for sure. Well, Christine, I mean, we could talk about food trends forever, and I know our time has come to, to a close. So I really wanted to, to thank you for being here today with us um, on Table Talk um, taking time out of your busy schedule. And I know, you know, we're going through a very incredibly challenging period right now for the restaurant industry and the food industry. Um, you've given us a lot of great insight into the world of food trends today. And I think if there's one common denominator that really binds us in this industry, it really is our love of food. So you've really, um, you know, you've really nicely talked about that today. And it'll be interesting to see how this period really will impact and change the way we look at food moving forward once we're able to move out of this. So 
So thank you so much for your time and uh, I appreciate it. And uh, above all, stay safe and be well. Thank you, Rosanna. Stay safe and don't forget taste, taste, taste. <laughs> Always. Thank you, Christine. We appreciate you joining us for this episode of the Table Talk Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd love for you to rate and review our show. Also, make sure you never miss an episode by clicking the subscribe button. For additional resources related to today's episode, please visit our website, foodserviceandhospitality.com. Until next time.